Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you know that indecision is costing you money? When employees get stuck in indecision loops, it can impact their work, the work of others, commitments to clients, and ultimately, your bottom line. Give your employees access to coaching when they need to stop indecision loops and keep your business moving forward. Visit Grand Heron International ca slash podcast to learn about the Grand Heron Plus program for corporations. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Welcome to the Keep Leading Podcast a podcast dedicated to promoting leadership development and sharing leadership insights. Here's your host, the Leadership Accelerator, Eddie Turner. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Keep Leading Podcast, the podcast dedicated to leadership development and insights. I'm your host, Eddie Turner, the Leadership Accelerator. I work with leaders to accelerate performance and drive impact through the power of executive coaching, masterful facilitation, and professional speaking. How can you and I face challenges as leaders? In this episode, we're going to discuss epic challenges and high-performing teams. And we will get the answer to that question by a man who is an absolute expert on both dealing with epic challenges and working on a high-performing team. My guest today is Dr. Charlie Camarda. He is an astronaut, a research engineer, inventor, author, educator, and an internationally recognized expert and invited speaker on subjects related to engineering, engineering design, innovation, safety, organization behavior, and education. He has over 60 technical publications that he's written. He holds nine patents, and he has over 20 national and international awards. He was inducted into the Air and Space Cradle of Aviation Museums Hall of Fame in 2017. For this and many reasons, I am absolutely excited to have Dr. Charlie Camarda Dr. Camarda, welcome to the Keep Leading Podcast. 
Good morning. Nice to meet you, Eddie, and, and great to be on your show. It is an absolute honor to meet you, and I'm so happy to have you, and grateful to our friend, Dr. Ruth Gotian, for introducing us, and she interviewed you as a part of her book that's going to be released about high-performing teams. Am I correct? That, that's correct. And yeah, what else is Ruth doing? She's doing amazing things. She also writes several Forbes articles. She's very prolific in, in Forbes articles. She's her, her new book is just coming out. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, she writes for Forbes, Harvard Business Review. She writes for Psychology Today and a bunch of other brand name, regularly read publications. And so she is definitely an authority and recently was recognized as on Thinkers 50. It's one of the top leadership thinkers in the world. So she is clearly someone to know. Yeah, yeah. Great lady, great lady. I love her. Well, now you are somebody who I am only used to reading about maybe in, in, in school textbooks and you look up, you always look up to the astronauts. I mean, you you all, we kind of feel like you walk on water. <laughs> it's not every day I get a chance to talk to the astronaut. Look up literally and figuratively, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We're, we're actually normal people, Eddie. Very normal. <laughs> That's uh, that's just fascinating. Until recently, only a select few people could say that they've been to space. But that's changed because a few billionaires have kind of started this program where they can kind of just kind of go up on their own. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think all total, probably about 600 people have been in space over the years, starting in the in the 50s. Right. And yes. hopefully that's going to grow exponentially. Well, tell us about your, your background before we get into our formal interview. I'd just love to have you share anything that you want our audience to know about you. I was uh, a street kid, grew up in uh, Queens, right on the borderline with Brooklyn. Always loved space, grew up during the uh, space race, us against the Russians in the 50s and 60s. I love science, math, excelled in those subjects in school, was always very, very curious, always asking questions. I uh, had a natural bent towards engineering. And so uh, I went into aerospace and aerospace engineering at Brooklyn Polytech. And I applied to work at NASA in between my junior and senior years. I did an internship. And that's when I realized I did an internship with NASA Langley. And that's when I realized I how much I loved research. And so I wanted to pursue my passion for research. And so I was um, I applied to NASA Langley Research Center, was selected, worked there for about 22 years. I applied to be an astronaut after I was working about three years, but I had just a, a Bachelor of Science degree. And so was not selected, waited 18 years, got advanced degrees, got my PhD in aerospace and ocean engineering from Virginia Tech, reapplied when I was 44 and flew in space when I was 53. Probably the the oldest first time flyer in in the astronaut office. And so uh, I flew in in uh, 2005 when I was 53 years old, flew on the return to flight mission following the Columbia accident and then went on to direct was director of engineering at Johnson Space Flight Center and senior advisor for innovation and engineering development at NASA Langley. Very interesting. You said a, a lot there, Charlie. And there's a couple of things I'd love to just kind of tease out a bit. 
the first thing you said is you said I was just a street kid. Tell me what you mean by that. <laughs> well, you know, growing up in, in, in Queens or Brooklyn, in New York, in those times, you had to be you had to be out. You had to be social. You had to be playing sports with your with your friends out in the, out in the neighborhood parks. You had to, and so it was uh, it was tough living in both worlds, right? My friends were very more more physical than I was. I was the geeky kid, you, you know, and and so being a geek at that time wasn't as cool as it is today. And so somehow you had to fit in. So you had to go in the park. You had to play those sports. You had to play football, handball, basketball, whatever the sport was. And so it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about interacting with other people and, and, and the importance of, of having diverse groups of people working together to solve problems and, and to work on teams. Excellent. So there's hope for street kids today that are listening to this episode. Oh, a- absolutely. Absolutely. I go back, you know, when I was I was teaching at NYU for about two years. And what I love to do was bring the kids from all parts of, of, of the city of New York, New Jersey together uh, to solve problems. And so you had kids from all areas. And so and that's basically what I teach for for students, the importance of diversity and and bringing diverse views on solving a problem, understanding a problem. Now, folks can't see this, but they'll see it when we promote the teaser episode. uh, There's this beautiful photo that you sent me of you lecturing in a gymnasium because you are actively reaching out to young people, encouraging them to go into STEM. Absolutely. I started a nonprofit to do just that. I looked at all the different reasons why our education system is failing and why kids are dropping out of STEM. I call it the leaky STEM pipeline. We're losing 80% of the kids by the seventh grade and 95% of the students of the of the of the students we lose by sophomore year in college. And so it's very important because it's important for our country and our economy that we have kids that are very educated in science, technology, engineering, and math, because almost everything we touch revolves around technology and it's understanding of that. And and so I think it's very important. I'm, I'm doing research on why, why kids drop out of this. And so that's why I started the Epic Education Foundation and the Epic Challenge Program. Thank you for explaining that. And you then said that you recognized that you loved research. And so you went into research and you tried to apply to become an astronaut and you were turned down. But you didn't let that deter you. You said, I only had a bachelor's degree, went back and got advanced degrees and made your goal. You did become an astronaut and accomplished some very notable, uh, had notable accomplishments. But tell me a little bit for a young person or anyone who's interested in becoming an astronaut. What is the requirement? How does one become an astronaut? Well, you know, it's it, they're they're always changing. What 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 types of astronauts do you want? You know, in the in the very early time of the the beginning, the the earliest astronauts were mostly selected from test pilot school because those were the people that had the certain skills that were necessary to fly the spacecraft and to operate under extreme conditions, multitask, process information, and make very quick decisions. When I first applied was in 1978. That's the first time they opened up astronaut role for non-test pilots. So when you think about it, this is the first time we were going to have engineers, scientists, researchers actually fly in space. 
And this was the opening up of the space shuttle program. And so you had what they called not only a commander and a pilot on the spacecraft, but you had what they called mission specialists. And so at that time, they were looking for people with these, mostly with PhDs that had this phenomenal technical background and experience. And I was only three years working at at NASA. And what I realized was that I really loved what I was doing at NASA during those 18 years interim before I reapplied, I really loved what I was doing. I loved science. I loved research. And really, when I made the decision to reapply, it really was I I made it for two reasons. Yes, I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, I also accomplished a lot in many different fields. I did analysis. I did experimental tests. I was able to do a design. And so what I wanted to do was actually fly and operate some of the ideas that we were inventing at NASA Langley. The other reason was I was a single parent. I had an eight and a half year old daughter, and I wanted her to know that she should not be afraid to try things and failing. And so I thought, what a great idea if my daughter would uh, consent to travel to Texas with me for several years. She could watch her father, who was uh, afraid of heights, claustrophobic, and couldn't swim, try to do the impossible, and that was become an astronaut. That says a lot. And what an example you set for your daughter and for other young people around the world. Thank you for sharing that. And so you become an astronaut, and you actually make your first flight after one of the most tragic events in space history, and that was the Columbia disaster. Can you tell us about the Columbia disaster for those who don't know or who don't remember? What happened What happened during 2003, the launch of STS-107, a large piece of foam came off the external tank and struck the vehicle on the underside of the vehicle. It hit either the fragile thermal protection system tiles, the ceramic tiles, or it hit the front leading edge, the front of the wing that's made out of a ceramic material, composite material called reinforced carbon carbon. And so... It was a very large piece of foam, almost two pounds, traveling uh, the uh, relative velocity when it struck the vehicle was about 545 miles an hour. And the people on the ground had to make a decision as to whether or not that foam caused critical damage. This was an area, you know, I, I, I researched 20, 22 years of my life was exactly in, in hypersonic vehicles, thermal structures, and specifically wing leading edges. And I was training in Russia. And when we got the tragic news, we received the tragic news that we lost the crew and we lost the vehicle. And we were huddled in our cottage in Star City, Russia, the six of um, the four U.S. crew members that were training there at the time watching the TV. We saw this large piece of foam come off and hit the vehicle. And I was just infuriated. I was very angry. I I watched this foam hit the vehicle and I could not believe that people would have thought that that did not cause critical damage. Okay, and you know this so well because part of you, as you said, part of the work that you did was you were one of the people that did the research as to what caused that tragedy and so that it could be ameliorated and not happen again. 
That's correct. I was working on advanced wing leading edges. I knew the people at NASA Langley that were looking at these advanced structures, these carbon-carbon materials. I knew how fragile they were. It was a sturdy material, but it was only protected by a very thin ceramic coating, about 40 thousandths of an inch thick a silicon carbide coating on the outside of that vehicle. You chip that coating and the wing burns up like a piece of charcoal. So talk about epic challenges. Yeah. Yeah. And you not only researched what caused it, but you were so confident in what the fruits of your research and the necessary repairs to make this correct so that it would never happen again, that you flew the first flight <laughs> after all that. Tell us about that. Yes, I, I had no clue that I was going to be selected for the next flight. But what I did know when I came back from Russia was that my experience was was drastically needed at the agency at that time. You know, the people at Johnson Space Flight Center made some very bad mistakes. I knew lots of people around the country at NASA research centers that could help solve this problem. And we needed to bring these people together to form the right teams to understand how that foam, when it impacts the vehicle, what kind of damage it could potentially cause, and how to repair the vehicle. If the next crew that flies, not knowing it would be me, would be flying, could they carry a repair kit to, to repair their vehicle? Yes. And what was the result? The result was because, because I was so familiar in how to put these teams together to solve challenges like this, because it was my training, you know, is what we did at NASA Langley. I put together a very small team of researchers from NASA Langley Glenn Research Center. Then we brought on a couple of uh, folks from Boeing Philadelphia to actually understand the impact dynamics of a large piece of foam hitting the vehicle. The techniques that the researchers used on the ground at Johnson Space Flight Center were very crude. They were not accurate and they totally missed the critical problem. And so with only three months time, these teams working together, mostly geographically dispersed teams, they were able to put together a computer simulation which accurately predicted impact damage and impact performance of large pieces of foam and debris hitting the shuttle vehicle. They did this by rapid uh, concept development and rapid testing and analysis. They used a building block approach to do this. Techniques that we we understood and we as, as researchers in how to solve the problem. And the connection between success as a leader and overcoming challenges and having a high performing team is crystallized by that example. That's right. That's just one of the examples. And there are many examples like that. And I'm in the process of writing a, a couple of different books, which highlight the examples that through my experience that I was fortunate to work on these amazing teams. Some of them I led one of the other teams was the repair team mm -hmm. where we had to come up with a solution for solving a pizza box size hole in a wing leading edge. Anything from a small thumbnail size hole in the wing leading edge or crack to a very large hole. And large teams with hundreds of people at NASA, Boeing, ATK, Thiokol, and, and other Lockheed we're not able to solve this problem. And so I went in uh, my friend's garage, uh, another astronaut who was uh, a, a very, very sharp fellow, Don Pettit. Mm -hmm. 
And we experimented with many different ideas. We used what I call the Friends of Charlie Network to basically explore these ideas, have material fabricated in different parts of the country sent to our homes, and, and we would test them. And so a lot of the, the, the methods that I use to teach my students, methodology I use to teach my students, Innovative Conceptual Engineering Design, or ICED, we use on the Epic Challenge program to build teams of students to solve these challenges. That's interesting. I did read that and trying to understand a little bit more about your work. And this is just so fascinating what you do to me that you all did not come up with the solutions on NASA property. You all did this on your own time at your garage. Actually, it was my friend's garage. And there are a lot of reasons for doing this, which are very the culture at NASA was dysfunctional. That's why the accident happened. Uh, it was not psychologically safe. And I totally knew that if we tried to come up with an innovative solution to the problem on campus at NASA, we would have been shut down. The people that were leading that effort would looked at us as competitors, believe it or not, even though we were both trying to save lives of astronauts, they would have closed us down. And so we had to do it in secret. And the people that I reached out to were my what I call the Friends of Charlie Network knew this. Mm -hmm. And even though their own companies would have told them not to work with us because they knew me and they knew what the challenge was and how important it was, they worked with us. What lesson does that have for leaders today? I think what I what I've seen at NASA and a lot of other companies, there are very few leaders. Eddie, we have managers. And what the lesson is you have to have courage. You, you have to have courage to support the people that work for you and not be afraid to stand up to people above you and tell them when mistakes are being made. You have to have you have to have a culture that's psychologically safe. Correct. Right. And and you and it's very difficult to maintain that culture of psychological safety, because when you have very large companies and they have a very hierarchical structure and hundreds and hundreds of teams, when you think about it, it only takes one of those teams to be dysfunctional. This was the case with Challenger. It was the case with Columbia. These very small teams that were entrusted to be the leaders in understanding key systems like the shuttle O-ring system or the the uh, the the um, the foam and the effect of foam impact on the wing leading edge. Those teams did not have the right people on them. They did not have the right expertise and they did not operate as a interdisciplinary converged team, a high performing team. And so when they looked at these critical problems, they did not really understand the root cause of these problems. And they did not have the analytical capability to predict what would happen in these different situations. And so their tools were not were not accurate. And so the decisions were, were very bad decisions. A deep lesson for leaders to learn indeed. Thank you for sharing, Charlie. Well, I am talking to Charlie Kermarda. He is an astronaut, a research engineer, innovator, author, educator, and an internationally recognized expert and speaker. We're talking about epic challenges and high-performing teams. We'll have more with Dr. Charlie Kamara right after this.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is sponsored by Eddie Turner, LLC. Organizations who need to accelerate the development of their leaders call Eddie Turner the leadership accelerator. Eddie works with leaders to accelerate performance and drive impact. Call Eddie Turner to help your leaders one-on-one as their coach or to inspire them as a group through the power of facilitation or a keynote address. Visit eddieturnerllc.com to learn more. This is JJ Ramberg, co-founder of Good Pods, and you're listening to the Keep Leading Podcast with Eddie Turner. We're back. I'm talking to Dr. Charlie Camarda. He's an astronaut, research engineer, inventor, author, educator, and an internationally recognized expert. And we're talking about epic challenges and high-performing teams. Charlie, before the break, you were telling us about your career at NASA, and we were talking about what impacts leaders, but the connection between whatever challenges that they have that are impacting them, and that through a high-performing team as a solution to conquering. You talked about some of the things that you all did as a team to come up with a solution that saved lives. Can you tell me, when you think about what happened with Challenger and Columbia, what was the root cause of tragic accidents like that? NASA, NASA's culture changed, Eddie. In the early days, it was a very highly research-oriented organization. When we started flying shuttles, it became more like a business organization. So it started with research centers. NASA Langley was the first of all the NASA centers. And research was a very valued commodity. And a research culture is much different than a business culture or a production culture. When you have people sustaining engineers looking at sustaining the life of a space shuttle. And so there was a very high tolerance for risk. There was a very high tolerance for failure because most researchers realized that the importance of failure. And there are ways to fail, right ways and wrong ways to fail. You fail in the laboratory. You fail to validate hypotheses and to validate your your analytical and mathematical models of problems. Okay, and so what you had in in, uh, when Columbia and Challenger happened, you had this engineering culture that that did not respect the importance of the researchers in their within their own organization. And so they had teams of people that were very sharp engineers. But when they when they had these very difficult, complex, interdisciplinary, complex problems, they really did not have the right team to solve those problems, number one. And number two, they did not reach out and explore outside their team to bring in these the right people to add to their team so that they would have the right knowledge to make the right decisions. And so a high-performing team, when you look at how they communicate, how they share knowledge, how they um, uh, inspire people to critique what they're doing. And they have this tolerance for diverse ideas and contradicting ideas. You have these problems. Most teams that get assembled think they're a great team. How do you know when the team is not a great team? I Well, you know, this is one of the things we're researching, Eddie, right? Like what makes teams 
What makes teams great teams, right? And, and you saw an article not too long ago by Julia Rozowski at Google that talked about, they looked at all these different Google teams and they have, you know, the greatest data analysts in the world. And they're looking for patterns as what, what makes one team successful and another team not so successful. And the one thing they saw that was underpinning in all the successful teams was this idea of psychological safety. When uh, when the research were, researchers were able to look at the data through the lens of psychological safety, they could see a connection, right? And so in the book that I'm hopefully going to write on high-performing teams, one of the key ingredients is this environment of psychological safety. It's very important for a high-performing team. It's very important for a learning organization to enable to allow this discourse, this disagreement, in order to self-correct. Now, you've used that phrase a few times. Can you tell us what you mean when you say psychological safety? Psychological safety means you're in an environment where it's okay to take interpersonal risk without fear of recrimination or retribution. It's not going to be damaging to your career. You're not going to be canceled, Eddie, in today's in today's language. You will not be canceled for asking tough questions or telling your boss he or she is out to lunch, that they do not know what they're talking about. If you don't have an environment like that, and that's and that's a research environment, we're constantly butting heads, we're discussing, you know, what is what is the true behavior of this phenomenon? Are we analytically predicting it correctly? Do are we making the right assumptions? And we're constantly testing those assumptions and we're comparing it with real data to validate what we know. When you stop doing that, when you stop allowing that criticism you have a non-psychologically safe culture. You're inviting groupthink. You're inviting an echo chamber. Yes. And is it not true that the challenge that led to several of these challenges or these catast catastrophic events is groupthink was allowed to creep in because people were not challenging leadership? Absolutely. Absolutely. The people, for instance, the people on the two teams that made those terrible decisions, the shuttle O-ring team and the, what was called the leading edge structural subsystem problem resolution team, the LESSPRT. These were the people that in their minds, they knew everything about the wing leading edge. And they did not go outside their team to bring in other experts when they knew that they did not have someone that understood ballistic impact damage to that wing. They did not bring those people in. These were people that were within their own agency. They could have reached out to people at other NASA centers to help them, and they did not do so because they knew, they thought they understood the problem when they really didn't. It goes back to your point earlier about diverse thinking. Correct. So especially when you have a team of high performers, because everybody, when you're in this kind of industry, as you said, at first, you only had a bachelor's, but you had to go back and get that PhD. So you're dealing with the best of the best and the brightest of the brightest people. So everyone's highly educated, but that doesn't mean that they're insulated from making major mistakes. You want you want to I can say in a few words, the clear distinction between the culture at Johnson Space Flight Center and the culture at NASA Langley Research Center. Okay. I worked for over 22 years at NASA Langley with some of the top people in the area of, of structural mechanics. They worked for over 40 years in a narrow area of structural mechanics, let's say nonlinear thin wall structures. They worked for 30 years, 40 years, never once heard them 
mentioned themselves as an expert, never referred to other people as an expert. But yet I moved to Johnson Space Flight Center and young engineers working five years understanding the structural behavior of a window, call themselves experts in glass. And, and that's it's that disrespect, thinking you know what you, what you really don't know, when people that are true scientists realize that they only understand something to a certain level, and then there are unknowns that they still have yet to understand. And that's how science is. You don't rest on your laurels because sooner or later your hypotheses will be disproved and you'll have to relearn something else in order to help solve that problem. So it was this arrogance, if you will, the, the young engineer arrogance, thinking that they had so much knowledge that they really did not have. Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> I, I like the point that you're making on that. Well, Charlie, I can't let you get away from us without telling us what does a retired NASA engineer, astronaut, researcher do <laughs> in, in retirement? I, I do everything I was doing while I was working, possibly even more so. My wife looks at me like I'm out of my mind. I'm not spending enough time with the kids, with the grandkids. It, it's because I have this these passions, as as a lot of uh, a lot of us do have, and so we continue following our passions. And what we do with our children, our grandchildren, our, our, and they really are the future of our country and, and our world. And so I'm spending a lot of my time trying to train young engineers and scientists around the world. Fantastic. And tell us, if you would, the best piece of advice you ever received or a quote that you use that helps you to keep leading. You know, when when I was was thinking about the the accident, you know, and why did these organizations cause problems? There was a quote by Admiral Hyman Rickover, the father of the nuclear Navy. And I think he summed it up best. And I and I have it here in front of me. He said what he said was what is needed is an atmosphere a subtle attitude, an uncompromising insistence on excellence, as well as a healthy pessimism in technical matters, a pessimism which offsets the natural human tendency to expect that everything will come out right and that no accident can be foreseen and forestalled before it happens. And that, and that, really, that really sums it up. Basically, have the humility to not trust what you think you know, but to, to keep searching and looking and to constantly question. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Where can my listeners learn more about you? You could go to charliecomada.com, my webpage. I also have an Instagram, Astro Charlie Kamada, and I'm a founder CEO of the EpicEducationFoundation.org. Wonderful. I'm going to put all that in the show notes so that people can reach out to you, connect with you on LinkedIn, follow you on Twitter, follow you on Instagram. I certainly am. And I want my listeners to do the same. <laughs> Thank you so much for making time for me today and for helping us understand how we can be better leaders by facing epic challenges and using high performing teams. Great. Thank you, Eddie. My pleasure. And thank you for listening. That concludes this episode, everyone. I'm Eddie Turner the Leadership Accelerator, reminding you that leadership is not about our title or our position. Leadership is an activity. Leadership is action. It's not the case of once a leader, always a leader. 
it's not a garment that we put on and take off. We must be a leader at our core and allow it to emanate in all we do. So whatever you're doing, always keep leading. Thank you for listening to your host, Eddie Turner, on the Keep Leading Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to the Keep Leading Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. For more information about Eddie Turner's work, please visit eddieturnerllc.com. Thank you for listening to C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.